everyone, and welcome to the Friday, September 17th installment of the Silicon Insider, the only uncensored look at life and business in the Valley. My name is Mike Malone, and I'm here with special contributor Scott Budman of NBC Bay Area. Our producer is Jordan Henderson, our East Coast correspondent is Bob Grove, and our host, as always, is the Silicon Valley Business Journal. All right, Scott. Well, we have several big things. We're not going to talk about a lot of little things this week. This is one of those weeks where we got a couple, three big ones. Yeah. First off, the Theranos trial, the Elizabeth Holmes trial. You're there every day. Yeah, and it, you know, I must admit, as someone who doesn't cover court much, this is fascinating to watch it all start to unspool. You know, they began uh, with the money person, sort of the you know the finance person from Theranos, uh, laying out that the company brought in a lot of investment money, which we knew, and did not generate any profit, which we also knew. And it was interesting because nobody goes to jail for that, right? Right, not, not in this um, town. But, but apparently my lawyer friends tell me, and I've been checking in with lots of them during this, you know, you've got to lay down the foundation that Theranos brought in a lot of money, there was a lot of optimism around these machines, and ultimately, and they had years, they didn't generate any profit. And again, biotech, that's not all that yeah. rare. Tell that to Amazon. Exactly. Uh, so the last couple of days, uh, we've seen the first whistleblower, Erica Chung, a young lab tech out of Berkeley uh, who got her first job out of college at Theranos. And she had a, a collegiate science background. She's very smart. You Wouldn't that be that a crazy school. career and a resume? Your first job. Well, it's been crazy for her. You know, now <laughs> that she's become the whistleblower, she's done TED Talks. She was a, a star of the Bad Blood book, you know, by uh, Wall Street yeah. Journal's John Carreyrou. And uh, well, now she's, she's leveraging it. Isn't that part of all this? Uh, you know, at, at first she was hiding from it uh, because one of the things that Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani did was to literally threaten people. On the stand, Erica Chung told a story of when she went to her next job, post Theranos, uh, there was someone in an SUV waiting in the parking lot. Gentleman gets out of the car and hands her, you know, essentially a cease and desist, don't talk about Theranos letter. She said she was very intimidated and who wouldn't be? Right. And this is the kind of tactic that's written about in the books a lot. So she tr she testified about that, but even more, she testified that when she was in the labs, uh, when she was there in the fairly early days of Theranos, um, you know, she noticed that the testing just didn't work. And that according to her, and I almost quote verbatim, you had uh, as much of a chance of flipping a coin as you did to get one of these results right. Some of the machines were wrong 50% yeah. of the time. Wow. For healthcare, that's pretty frightening. Yeah. Um, so the question is, did Elizabeth Holmes know this? And did she continue to lie to investors by saying these machines worked when she knew they didn't? We have to establish that. Now, Eric, so who was her muscle in there? Companies right. that send out guys with, with, you know, black vans to talk to people, SUVs, typically have an ex-FBI guy in there or some law enforcement who's the, who's the muscle. You know, they had lots of investors from the government and even from, you know, the military. I don't think that was it. I think they just had, A, a lot of money from investors, and B, a very, very aggressive legal team led by David Boies. That's a name that's got to oh, be familiar yeah, for you. Okay. Uh, Microsoft and all that. Sure. And he was not only their attorney, but as it comes to find out, a pretty big investor in the company. And I'm not sure how conflicted that is. I honestly don't know if your lawyer can also be an investor and have shares of stock. Perhaps that's how they paid him. Maybe, but yeah, that raised some interesting questions. Was he on the board too? He might have been on the board. 
I'm okay, not sure. Now it gets weird. But that's okay. David Boyce, big hitter. Yeah, sure. Very well-known lawyer, uh, known for aggressive tactics. And if you believe the reporting in the Wall Street Journal, uh, his tactics were extremely aggressive. And we're going to hear more about that because while Erica Chung had a direct email correspondence with Sonny Balwani, she did not with Elizabeth Holmes. So they need to prove somehow that what she the knew link, yes. got to Elizabeth Holmes. That link, according to her, is Tyler Schultz, another familiar name who was not only the grandson of George Schultz, who was on the board of directors. Yes, we'll get to him in a minute. Right, but Tyler Schultz was also a young lab assistant, worked with Erica Chung, and he found out from her about these labs and tests, and apparently, according to the reporting so far, um, emailed Elizabeth Holmes directly. So I expect him to testify fairly soon as sort of the next step after Erica Chung. So it's getting interesting pretty early on in the trial. Okay, so who's on the... Who's Who's giving testimony? Who's on the, on the list now? The big names, the heavy hitters. Well, um, Kissinger. Right, Henry Kissinger. George Schultz. Well, he passed away, actually. Well, I know, but his son. His grandson, Tyler but, Schultz, yes. But I'm, I want to bring up Schultz for a moment because he seems to be a major connection in here. Yes, he's very Which is connected. interesting because I, I interviewed uh, him for my TV show. In fact, after I read some of this stuff, I realized I may have been at the Marine Memorial in at a luncheon there when Elizabeth Holmes was there when she made the connection with George Schultz because I got in the elevator and talked to Schultz because I had interviewed him years ago and you know he's like he was like 90 at the time mm -hmm. and you know he was always the rock of integrity I mean that's the guy you look up to and go uh, you know in my old age I want to be George Schultz uh, his that brilliant career and all that and you know those luncheons are oftentimes networking moments and i i wonder if she was there when i was there and she that's when she pitched him yeah maybe so uh but it's really interesting his name appears and then all of a sudden all of these generals and admirals start lining up right i mean and i get the feeling he's the connection he very well likely was because through him you have all these government and military connections i mean mad dog mattis was on the board yes you know obviously henry the, kissinger the warrior monk yeah right and, and eventually you get to some of the major investors uh like rupert murdoch and obviously a lot of Sand Hill Road VCs, but also other private you know, investors. And um, the list is long, and I, I don't know how many of them will actually make it to yeah, the I, witness I, stand. I, but you know, are they going to bring 98-year-old daughter Henry Kissinger up there? What, what theater that would be? Oh. Imagine. Imagine. Boy, we just tied all the last 40 years. You know, all the way back to Nixon, everything comes all together now. Mad Dog Mattis, and you know, <laughs> who knew she could bring together history like this yeah. when she set out to have a blood testing device. Well, you know, it, it kind of underscores that argument that everybody famous knows each other and they're all connected. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to see some of those connections over the next few weeks. Okay, so let's talk about your experience doing this because you sent me a note saying, "I'm sitting here covering the Holmes trial, watching the Apple." Oh, yeah. Product introduction at right. the same time. Well, on Tuesday... So you're multitasking both... reporting right now. Yeah, on Tuesday they hit at the same time, and I specifically went to the overflow courtroom so that I could lay out a couple of devices and have a little room. And sure enough, that day was not a big day in terms of you know public and press and stuff. So I had a little bit of room. And it was also, as it happened, before Erica Chung was called in, there was a lot of sort of procedural items yeah. to take care of that they even excused the jury for. And so, you know, I found my mind wandering just a bit to the other screen where <laughs> Tim Cook was introducing the new yeah, iPhone. Yeah, my normal job. Yeah, and, um, and so was able to, to sort of keep an eye on that. And again, that wouldn't have happened if Apple wasn't virtual still. 
you know, these events are happening right. over... You're not having to go up to Moscone Center or whatever. Well, right now it's at their headquarters in Cupertino, and um, but it's all taped and it's very anticlimactic. And again, it really hits home that what Apple is doing now is sort of incrementally updating the phone, yeah. which I think is what they were doing before. But you got to admit, we were all sort of caught up in the spectacle right. as they were incrementally updating yeah, but the phone. Yeah, but there was always that every couple of years, that moment where Steve came out. You know, and another thing, and he actually would change the world. I mean, we, we all got right. spoiled by the first decade of 21st century where where Apple and Steve Jobs were literally changing the world every other year, you know, and creating trillion dollar markets. True. And, and it's never been the same since. There's never, there, we haven't had any moments like that. No, I mean, I remember the excitement when, when Cook first came up with the watch. Yes. But that excitement quickly became well, wait, it's a watch. Yeah, what do we need watch. to do with it? And ultimately, years in, as someone who has worn the watch and but tested even the watch. that was Steve's idea. So. Apparently so. But, yeah. um, you know, either way, it's been something of a revenue generator. But I wouldn't say that it's changed the no, world. No. You know, it's opened people's eyes to the idea and the potential of wearables. Right. But we're not quite, um, you know, saying, hey, doctor, I don't need to see you because my wearable tells me everything I need to know. Yeah. I, <laughs> you know? I already had a checkup this morning exactly. while I was still asleep in bed. Right. Yeah. Uh, so it's more about, again, the iPhones. We saw the iPhone 13 and its various iterations. We saw new iPads, uh, including a mini that I think is going to be a hot seller. I think that's going to come back strong. Uh, yes. I mean, I, I, I read some comments. There's some interesting news that came out of it that the new iPhone is actually has a faster order rate right now the 13 than its predecessor, the 12, which is, for an incremental improvement, that's kind of impressive. It is because the phones didn't stop selling during the pandemic. So yeah. it's not as if people are saying, ah, now I'm feeling like I can throw 1,000 to 1,300 at a phone where I couldn't before. Because yeah. they were doing that before, right. even during the pandemic. We bought a lot of electronics. So what's the appeal that everybody feels like they've got to get the 13? Well, I don't know. I mean, one analyst told me that uh, her idea was people are not buying every year. I mean, we think they are. So but this is the this is the this seems to be a big year. We had the sine wave then. Yeah. And we're at the peak. Yeah, and, and the twelve is is a very good phone. Um, you know, its Samsung counterpart is a very good phone. Yeah. Some of the Google Pixels are very good phones. The thirteen looks like a very good phone. <laughs> you know, the cameras improved, the processing improved, the battery life a little bit improved, and that's what people wanted to see. A more little of. bit improved. Right. We talked about this last time. Right. That's what people really want. Right, and, and they're gonna have to wait a bit. And but, a slightly faster processor. Yeah. And it is I'm I'm amazed as someone who grew up in a world before iPhones, yeah. uh, that You've got a full-on, full-blown computer in your pocket or purse everywhere you go. You know, lifestyle. You have all of civilization in your hand. <laughs> yeah. You know, the the death of 20 industries made that iPhone. Right. And if there is, especially in a place like California where the vaccination rate is high and you're starting to see people back at the malls, if there is an optimistic Christmas shopping season to be had, I think yeah. Apple will benefit from that. Well, those incredible amount of orders. Uh, Tim Beharin who's been covering Apple for, what, 35 years yeah. now. Uh, he really raved about the new uh, iPad, that uh, he thought it was like a perfect solution, the, the medium-sized one. Do you yeah. agree? Does it, did it impress you? I, I was real curious after I read Tim what you thought. I remember when the first iPad mini came out and it was a hot seller, and yeah. now they've improved it and made it fast and everything. But they detuned the chip. It's got the same chip as the 13, right. but they detuned it. 
Why would they do that? I don't know. You're getting into areas that <laughs> I, I don't know. But I mean, I must say the 13 Max Pro, you know, it's a big phone, right? Yeah. And the iPad mini is a small iPad. Yeah. And they're not all that dissimilar yeah. In, yeah. In, in size and in what they can do. And right. remember when Apple had a bit well, of a stylus with the Well, iPad. yeah, if you still want. But, um, which I believe Jobs said he would never have, right? Right. But uh, it, it reminds me a bit of when the iPods yeah. were getting bigger and had photos and could do all these things. And then the phones came out and, and they were just there was yeah. so much overlap and eventually they said okay just do it all on your phone we're back to incremental improvements yeah, yeah. and so as people uh and you know I, I like to think that people are still reading books yeah. no 5g on the ipad too no i know i, I it's like do you want to make phone calls on them or it's I, like I it's like remember they used to take the uh, dodge would do that so the viper you know had a certain type of engine and you'd have to find the same kind of engine and something else but they detune it down. It's like they're intentionally making making the iPad less because they're afraid it's going to cannibalize the phone. Right, and I don't quite understand. It seems like it would be used for for different things. Yeah. But again, they're similar sizes. There's, um, you know, I, I think people have realized there's a lot more you can do with the iPads that yeah. make them like computers. And I wouldn't expect the iPad to cannibalize the iPhone. I would expect it to cannibalize the laptops. But isn't that how you're supposed to do it? You come up with a better product that cannibalizes an older design? Yeah, I mean, no, and I think that's what Apple is doing. Remember, this is a company that is doing pretty well in the marketplace. Oh, yes, indeed. And I, and I think their bet on the iPad as not being a computer killer, yeah. but as being a good alternative for those who are on the go. A distinct market. Yeah, I mean, if, if I flew a lot, that's oh, yeah. the device I'd really want. And just take along a keypad in your uh, exactly. luggage. Exactly, Yeah. Okay, so the third big story of the week, man, the Wall Street Journal is en fuego right now. <laughs> I mean, this, I look at this and I'm so full of envy as a former investigative reporter. I wish I was on this story. They are taking Facebook apart. And, you know, you wonder, you, you, you break the news of an upcoming product as a reporter, and now the police come to your door, you know, and lawsuits and everything else. But you can still break internal memos of companies. Sure. And you got to wonder, how did the journal get this? Now, it happens two ways. One of them, he has a contact with a contact with a contact that wants to talk to you and show you some stuff because they're, they're, they're really upset. And then you got to really discover, why are they upset? Do they have an axe to grind? Because everybody has an axe to grind. You're not going to risk giving away corporate documents to a newspaper unless you're really pissed off. So why are you pissed off? That's the first thing you gotta do. But the second one is sometimes, I watched this happen with P. Carey at the Merck. I mean, he had two Pulitzer Prizes. I worked with him for a while. <clears throat> he would get to the office, the newsroom at the Merck, and go over to his mail cubby hole, and there'd be an envelope in there. And the guard didn't know how it got there. You know, somehow it got into the newsroom of the Mercury, and it was sitting there, and he would open it up, and it'd be internal documents from, you know, the FBI and the CIA, somebody wanted to take somebody else down, they couldn't get to them, so they gave it to you. Well, this, I mean, we're on the fourth, today is the fourth part of this ongoing story of the Facebook files. They even got their own logo for the series. That's, that means it's big <laughs> for the paper. Uh, so, so far, what, they, what have they broken? We'll get into in today's in a moment, but they've broken the fact that 
uh, internal documents, people inside of Facebook basically agreed this was screwing up teenage girls. Yeah, of, of, of the four things that they've broken, and you know, we've talked about how they've given some people more, you know, more leniency on the platform, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. This is the thing that, that's the most damning to me, and yet it's the thing that's not necessarily the most surprising, but it's that Facebook knew Instagram was toxic to yeah. especially teen girls. And well, as a father of two teen girls, this must have hit home. It, it hit you. home, but it also, it wasn't a huge surprise, but for the fact that Facebook had been discussing this um, and, and not doing anything about it, really. Uh, and, and that's what, what surprises me. And then to see the response from the head of Instagram, who compared oh, it to yeah. cars. And by that, yeah. I mean, he said, well, There's cars... There's more good than bad. Right. Cars sometimes kill people, but they get us yeah, to where we're going. Tell that to the parents of a teenage girl who committed suicide because exactly. she got... She got fat shamed or something on Facebook. Right, and he's saying social media is more good than bad. And that's been uh, a common theme, well, pretty much since 2016, but especially after January 6th, is social media more good than bad or more bad than good? And to have it broken down and, and drilled down, and good for the journal for doing this, to teen girls who yeah. are not only the target market for Instagram, but really the most affected by social media. Right. Um, and to find out that they knew um, you know, they're making body images issues worse for teen girls. Yeah, well, this, you know, this survey that says there are a number of girls who have considered suicide because of what happened to them on Facebook, on Facebook or Instagram. Right. I mean, what the hell? Well, okay, but those girls in a previous generation, maybe 15, 20 years ago, if they would consider it, it would be because of what happened to them in the hallways of yeah, school. Yeah, it'd be the mean girl situation. Right, yeah. or, or you know, even earlier on the playground or something. And now, because social media is what it is and it's so pervasive, um, it doesn't have to be face-to-face. -face. You can yeah. smile at somebody face-to-face -face and then cut them yeah, down Yeah, but the mean girl syndrome, it, you know, it's four girls giving you a hard time. Right. Instagram, it's 5,000 other girls giving you a bad time. All of a sudden, you right. feel like not just... I don't want to go to school today because I hate to run into these girls. Now it's like, I think everybody in the world hates me. And that's a whole new level of self-destruction, you know? Right. And when you look at companies, typically you say, hey, look at this. And they say, oh, okay, we'll look into it. Come to find out Facebook knew this and had been discussing it, and now we know what the head of Instagram felt. Well, but it's yeah, all in all, it's a well, plus. Well, you know, you, you know. gotta break a few eggs. Exactly, yeah. and I think that's gonna have legs for a while because... Um, Do you see, I see lawsuits coming from this. Well, but does Section 230 protect an Instagram from those sort of lawsuits? Remember, we were thinking lawsuits after January 6th, and because of all the COVID yeah. misinformation, I don't think we've seen any, right? No. So, is this what brings them? Oh, I, the, I don't know. Attorneys all over America are thinking, you know, what a case this would be. You know, well, look what's going on today with that that girl and her boyfriend. You know, the one that had the fight with her boyfriend, they can't find her. Oh, yeah. And the entire country is galvanized right now because pretty blonde teenage girl, and she's missing, okay? Picture a loss, picture a trial where they're holding the picture of this sweet 14-year-old girl, the defense attorney, saying Facebook knew they were doing this. We have a quote, we, you know, this is toxic, teenage girls. That's an internal memo. 
you know, that's a smoking gun. Right. Think about it, Michael. We've gotten to the point where we know government isn't going to do much. Heck, they're still asking how Facebook makes money. Right. But maybe there is, and, and we know we have a young, hip FTC chair, maybe there is a legal mind out there that's going to crack this ice open yeah. and open the floodgates on something like this because of what you said, because of something like this and the, the politics, the misinformation, and now the body image issues all might come to the forefront. Um, oh, and Facebook, as usual, seems to be oblivious. They make, remember we were talking about a year ago about how Facebook was doubling, it seemed like they were doubling down on bad publicity. So what are they now announcing now? New new Facebook programs for young people, younger than teenagers. Why would you announce that at the same time unless you are so absolutely convinced you're invulnerable to any sort of outside pressure? Right, because so far they have been. No one has cracked that ice. Yes. And Facebook, which has, trust me, a, a whole lot of PR people, yeah. Um, yeah. just still can't get out of its own way. Yeah, well, and today the Wall Street Journal Facebook staff flags criminals, but company often fails to act. And apparently we have uh, drug cartels recruiting people, human traffic in the Middle East using the site to have women, lure women into abusive employment situations, uh, revolution, oh, armed groups in Ethiopia using the site to incite violence against ethnic groups. Well, let me bring this back to what we started to talk about, the Theranos trial and Elizabeth right. Holmes. You know, a lot of people are saying this is really interesting, not just because of the specific facts of the case, but because a CEO who maybe knowingly led investors and the public astray is actually being called to the carpet for it. That's very rare, as you know. Indeed. And so a lot of people are looking at the Elizabeth Holmes trial as sort of Silicon Valley on trial. Mm -hmm. Are things going yeah, to change for companies that knowingly mislead investors, users, you name it? And at this point, I believe we know that Facebook has done just that. Mm -hmm. So if Elizabeth Holmes loses, are other companies going to be watching and saying, uh-oh, we've been doing that and getting away with it because we're, I don't know, too big to fail because there's not much in the way of standards. And all of a sudden that may close in on them. Well, I, let me make a prediction because I think this is the best business investigative story of the year, maybe of the last several years. Wall Street Journal gets a Pulitzer Prize. And if they don't get it, at minimum, they get a low price because this is great stuff. And it's traditional, real reporting. It's gumshoe reporting. They want, they're doing their, they're doing the work. And I don't see any bias in this story whatsoever. This is traditional, straight, objective journalism. And, you know, bless them. And it affects a lot of people. And it affects a lot of people. And it will, it will probably cause major changes, cultural changes. That's what we need to see. We haven't seen those yet at Facebook or Instagram. Yeah. Okay, well, before we run out of time, let's see. Stock Stocks are weird. They don't quite seem to know what's going on. <laughs> End of sentence. Good. They're getting, stocks are yeah, weird. <laughs> they're getting good economic data right now. Uh, other, everything looks good. Jobless claims rose, which is a good sign, etc. But the market is, they still don't know. They can't predict the future. And when the market can't con convict the future, they look like just a bunch of cats wandering around. I mean, they just, they're, they're, the market's not doing a lot of moving right now. Uh, let's see, a YouTube duo, did you read this? They found $100,000 worth of vintage games in a hoarder's house. You mean video games? Video games, yeah. Wow. Yeah, like really rare ones. And um, <laughs> the place was dis 
disgusted. Literally, they had the the stuff was a lot of the stuff was still in its wrappers, okay, and uh, you know, and, and it was covered with cockroaches and maggots, and they got so excited they didn't want to leave, so they were pulling up these these, these games from underneath these this disgusting mass of squirreling, you know, insects and stuff. Estimate a hundred thousand dollars worth of stuff. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me when uh, no, that ET video game for Atari bombed and they buried it out in the desert. Oh yeah, yeah, those... yeah. Oh yeah, they, they dug a giant pit. Right. I covered that one. <laughs> uh, and finally, I literally got this off the paper. The father of Carvana's. This is a tech story, Carvana. Sure. You know, uh, you know your 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 automat car company. Right. Uh, the CEO's dad just sold. $3.6 billion of stock. A used car guy. Wow. You know, and he got three points. And I thought, well, happy Father's Day. <laughs> That's a pretty nice deal. That's when your kid does well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's it for now, folks. You can find us on the Silicon Valley Business Journal homepage, as well as on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.